Well, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And I think that statement sort of strikes me because I think we fail to be awestruck by Christmas. We are so used to the story, the nativity scenes, all of these things, many of them kind of made up as people went along for 2,000 years. But something happened on that first advent that when you ponder it is truly mind-blowing. It is world-changing. It changed the course of human history forever. And it is so extraordinary that it is actually difficult to comprehend. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink sums it up this way. It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. The incarnation, the eternal son of God taking on a human nature, body and soul, represents eternity entering into time. Immensity being confined in space. Infinity in the finite. Immutability, which means unchangeableness, in change, being, in becoming, that all, as it were, is in that which is nothing. The mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. You see, the sole purpose of us celebrating Christmas is worship actually for who Jesus is and what God has done to save us. And with this momentous Christian holiday, Approaching next week, our focus this morning is mainly going to be on the first part of the text we read, because we are going to focus on the miracle of all miracles, the incarnation of the Son of God. We're going to do this under six headings. You have them in your outline, and you'll see that the sermon kind of blends between the six, but they might be helpful to you. A magnificent revelation, the necessity of the incarnation, the incomprehensibility of the incarnation, that it's a Trinitarian act. The glory of the incarnation and eternal significance. Let's begin with the magnificent revelation. Paul begins in this section saying, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And we remember he's writing this as a letter to Pastor Timothy. He is the leading elder in the church at Ephesus, but it is a letter that is meant to be read to the entire church that captures this creed. And the reason is a reason that we can relate to. The church is not central to Ephesian culture. Ephesus didn't revolve around the church. The church didn't have any worldly power at all. It likely met just in the homes of faithful followers of Christ. But they lived in an environment that was hostile to the faith. It was a society that was consumed with worldly passions, lust, materialism, and idolatry and false religion. That prevailed, and these people, they looked on Christians with bewilderment. These people who worshipped a God-man who died and rose again, and with much disdain because they wouldn't seem to compromise like they wanted him to. Marking the very landscape of Ephesus, what it was known for is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, also known as the Temple of Artemis. And that temple had a hundred marble columns, 60 feet high, that held up a glistening marble roof that could be seen for miles and miles. But these pillars, as impressive as they were, they only supported idolatry and human depravity and lies. And so Paul, in the verse that precedes our text, he he wrote and he reminded the church that the church of the living God is different from anything else in the world. He said it is the pillar and buttress of truth. Nothing like these pillars that support a pagan god. 
Great is the mystery, he says, and this language probably reflects Paul's memory of his missionary trip to Ephesus, which we can find in Acts chapter 19. We know that worshipers of Artemis and the idol makers revolted against Paul and the gospel, and they chanted. Verse 28 records for us, as they revolted against Christ, it says they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, if the church is to be the pillar and buttress of truth in the world, we have to know what the truth is. And Paul's response is to say, great is the mystery of godliness. It is indeed a great truth, because great is the head of the church, the risen and glorified God-man, Jesus Christ. He says the truth that we confess is the very mystery of godliness. Godliness here just translates a word that means devotion. It is, it is what we do. It is we worship the living Christ. And the mystery, and we've talked about this term before, when it's used in the Bible, it, what it refers to is God's once secret plan of redemption that has now been revealed. So the mystery of how sinful man will be saved is great. And it has been revealed in Jesus, a real living man who is also God the Son. It was important to emphasize that he was real. And the Apostle John does this in 1 John chapter 1, where he says that that which was from the beginning, this eternally existing God, we have looked upon, we have heard, we've seen with our own eyes, we've touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest. He, he walked among us. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made visible, was made manifest to us in Jesus Christ. But the truth that the church is called to proclaim to the world is the saving mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that hinges on one key moment in time, the defining event in all of human history, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. And that is our second point, the necessity of the incarnation. All of our points are going to flow from this first part. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And the he there is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The he is Jesus. The he is the Christ, the Messiah. The he is the Savior of all people. And the Savior that they had eagerly awaited until, in the words of Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, when God's plan had reached its fruition, God sent forth his Son. How? Born of a woman. Born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's what was revealed. What is the mystery? Well, the mystery is 800 years before the conception of Christ. God told the prophet Isaiah, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The revelation of that mystery it began when the angel appeared to Joseph. And the angel said to him, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not might, he will save his people from their sins. The Son of God was manifested in the flesh. He took on a human nature. The creature took the form of the created being, the body and soul of a creature. 
But we need to go back to the beginning of this mystery. From that first sin in the garden, everything pointed to Jesus Christ, though it remained hidden until that first Christmas night. We knew from the start, all humanity, that there was nothing that we could do to cover our own sins and present ourselves to a holy and righteous God. You see it in the behavior of Adam and Eve who sinned and then tried to cover their sin with a fig leaf and hide in the garden. Genesis 1.7 But only God can cover a man's sin. And it requires death. It requires blood. It requires a substitute. And from the very beginning, God foreshadowed the work that was to come in Christ when he slayed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve, covered up their nakedness with the skin of that animal. And then God told us in Genesis 3.15 that it would come by the seed of a woman. Eve who had sinned, And all of her generation from there, they would all be restored because the Messiah would come from the seed of a woman. Satan would be destroyed. Redemption would be provided. And then you start pouring through the Bible. And you see the covenants made with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel and Moses and David. And it becomes more and more clear that God would be the one who would need to act himself to redeem sinners and restore creation. No man can do it. There's no other solution to be found in all of creation to our problem. And that problem is that sin had separated us from God. Romans 6.23, a verse probably everybody has memorized. It lays out the problem. And it lays out the solution for all people in all of human history. We know what it says. The wages of sin is death. We know that. We're conceived in sin. We're born sinners. From the moment life begins at conception, we are tainted with original sin of Adam. And we know that we need to make an atonement. We need to make things right between us and God. But we are human. We are creatures, created beings. We have no way to reach up to God. Nothing allows us to do that. Nor do we have anything to offer. Because death and eternal punishment are the just and fair outcomes. Penalty for our rebellion. We need a substitute. We need someone who can pay our penalty. Someone who is a spotless, sinless lamb to be slain in our place. In short, we need a savior and we know this. To live and be reconciled to God, we need a person just like us, but one who is untainted by original sin. One who can live in perfect obedience to God's law. One who, even in doing that, would be willing then to go and die in our place and suffer the penalty we deserve. We need the just to pay the penalty for the unjust, us. We need the righteous one to step in and pay the penalty for the unrighteous sinner. And Isn't that just what Jesus did? The God-man came and did this for us. 1 Peter 3.18 will tell you that. And Romans 6, in the latter half of that verse, lays out this solution. And the solution comes from God, and the solution is God. That's the amazing thing about it. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the only way this works is if somehow, in some way, God, who is spirit, creator of all things, somehow takes on human flesh and lives in, with body and soul, subject to every weakness we have, yet without sin. Hebrews lays this out for us in Chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, the eternal Son of God, 
likewise partook of the same thing. Verse 17 says Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to satisfy God's wrath. Hebrews 4 caps it all off and says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. They live forever. Jesus, the the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But how does the Son of God, eternal in His being, the great high priest who passed through the heavens, who lived before time began, and who will rule for all eternity, how could God become man? It would take a miracle. It would take an act of God to save us. And that's exactly what happened. And it is almost incomprehensible. Our third point, the incomprehensibility of the incarnation. You can start here. How does a young Jewish girl living in an obscure town called Nazareth, who has never known a man intimately, who remains a virgin, how does she become pregnant? God foretold this many years before, 800 years earlier. We read that. But who would believe it? Who would understand it? Even today, people do backflips to make excuses about what this may have meant. Nobody would get it. Nobody would understand it. Nobody would expect it. There is no human being on earth that would come up with the idea that in order to reconcile ourselves to a holy God, I I know what could happen. Maybe God himself could suffer the humility of becoming like me, becoming like his creatures. Being born, maybe, of a woman, but it couldn't be any normal birth. But maybe he would save us by becoming a man. Save us from the consequences of our own sin and rebellion against God. Nobody, nobody would come up with that. The most incomprehensible thing about the incarnation is that God could ever even take on a human nature, a body and soul, and live as a human being. How can the creator of all things exist as a creature, as a creature, a created being. You see, even as many deny the incarnation today, it wasn't any more expected among the religious people in first century Israel. In fact, the idea that God could live in the flesh, that he could actually be a man, that was considered blasphemy, worthy of the death penalty. The Jews approached Jesus in John 10.33 and says the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And yet our faith, our redemption, the redemption of all mankind, rests upon one key fact. And that is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That he is our Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is eternal God in human flesh. The very meaning of incarnation. How important is that confession? Well, 1 John 4.2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He goes on and says that a failure to come to full agreement with that historical fact declares you to be an antichrist. You cannot claim any saving faith and deny the incarnation. You can say it in words. But it's foolishness. 
The Bible is clear. The Holy Spirit has spoken. Deny that the eternal Son of God took on a human nature, came in the flesh. And the Bible says you are an antichrist. None of this is simple, though. It's not easy to grasp. God's work to save us required, in the words of Philippians 2, that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, meaning he is eternal God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was more important to him to save his people. It says he emptied himself. Not by losing a single part of his divinity. He emptied himself by taking something on. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Just ponder the magnitude of that, and you'll never reach the end of what that means. The Gospel of John tells us that the Word, the Son of God, was. He always existed. He is eternal. Eternally the Son. Living in perfect unity with the Father and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one nature, one will, one God. And before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. For all of time, except there was no time. It's all of eternity. That is how he existed. The Bible tells us all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made. That was made, and in him was life itself. You don't get past the first three verses of the Gospel of John without reading the magnificence of the eternal Son of God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us, By him, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 adds that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything God creates is by, through, and for the Son. Every child from the moment of conception is a unique creation of God, and yet God will be conceived. The eternal Son holds everything together. Every millisecond of every day for all time. And if he were to stop that for one Millisecond, the world would explode into chaos. Did the activity ever stop? What about when Jesus was laying in a manger? Or learning to talk? Or learning to walk? This is why the mystery is great. Of course not. It never stopped. The world continues to exist. He gave up nothing of his divinity. He never, capes, never stops holding all things together. And this is why it becomes this mind-bending miracle like no other. It's what theologians call the hypostatic union. Super confusing concept. Just as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represent three persons in one nature, in taking on a human nature at the incarnation, the person of the eternal Son is now one person with two natures. One divine. One fully human. Existing together but not commingling. This is why the Apostle John writes an entire gospel, the Gospel of John. And he says his reason for that in John 20, 31 is so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can see that he's a man. You need to understand he is the eternal Son of God. And yet, by the time he hits his epistle in 1 John, he has now flipped that and said, you can't just confess that he's the Son of God. If you fail to confess that Jesus is fully human, you're an antichrist. You have no part of the kingdom of God. He's always fully divine. He's always the Son of God, and yet he's always fully human. 
We won't go much deeper than that. What I want you to see is that the advent of Jesus Christ, the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, it's no minor thing. It's not a simple thing to pass over the birth of Christ as we make our way to Easter, which we can understand a little bit better and wrap our heads around. It's the celebration at Christmas of a miracle of epic proportions, mind-twisting realities that we can spend a lifetime studying and we can never fully grasp. The eternal Son of God in the flesh. Jesus is truly God, truly man. Two natures, one person. The divine nature has and always has infinite power, absolute knowledge. Life is omnipresent. At the same time, the human nature of Jesus obeyed God, died, rose again, and so on. But natures don't act. Persons act. So it is Jesus who is both. Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross, who ate, who slept, who wept, but also who healed and who forgave sins, which only God can do. It is an amazing thing. The London Baptist Confession captures it well. If you pay attention to this, you'll notice the language draws straight from Scripture. It says, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being true and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of the same substance and equal with him, who made the world and who upholds and governs all things which he has made, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon himself man's nature with all its essential properties and common weaknesses with the exception of sin. Thus two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, So that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, yet he is one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. You could spend forever trying to wrap your head around that. How did this amazing miracle take place? Our fourth heading, it's a Trinitarian act. All acts, actually, in redemptive history include the actions of all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In salvation, the Father chose us, the Son purchased us on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies all the benefits of salvation and sanctification. You can explore that in Ephesians 1. And the Trinitarian action in redemptive history is abundantly evident in the Incarnation. When we think of the birth of Jesus, we must not lose sight of the fullness of God It worked to miraculously save his people. Because in the incarnation, you see the authority of the Father and the love of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit working in perfect unison to fashion the God-man, Jesus Christ. What was the Father's role? He was the architect, the grand architect. Hebrews 10.5, which actually plays off Psalm 40, verse 6, says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. Uh, We won't turn there, but in the context of Hebrews 10, a human body and soul were necessary for Jesus in order that the perfect, once-for-all, atoning sacrifice for sins could be made on behalf of us. Mark Jones wrote a fabulous book. I encourage you all to read it. It's called Knowing Christ. It is not a big book. but It is a powerful book. And in it he writes... If the Father was responsible as the master architect for designing and preparing the body the Son would assume, the Holy Spirit, 
like a master builder, was responsible for the actual formation of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary. And that we see in Scripture, don't we? We know the Christmas story. In Luke 1, 34 and 35, we read the angel's explanation to Mary when she says to the angel, how will this be that I should conceive a child since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Father designed. The Holy Spirit implemented that the, the human nature would be created at conception, but the decision to assume a human nature belonged to the Son. It was a decision to take into permanent union with Himself a full human nature, body and soul, and for redemption to be completed. This had to be voluntary. It couldn't be coerced. And it was with all actions of the triune God in human history. It accomplishes much. And it glorifies God. Our fifth point, the glory of the incarnation. Start by this recognition that in Jesus you have two natures that are separated by the greatest distance imaginable. Side by side, creator of all things. And a created being. Unchangeable God and Changing man, ever-changing. Just reflect upon these two statements that speak of Jesus. And they reflect the two natures. There's no conflict in Scripture. Both of these statements are 100% true. Consider this, Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. He learned. He changed. But what about Hebrews 13.8? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Both are true, 100% true. Two natures, one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote this, What a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity, and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne would be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. How does it glorify God? Well, God is glorified by revealing himself, first off, to humankind in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can know him, in a way that we can follow him. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It is in Christ that we can witness God's glory in a way that we understand. It is to God's glory that he saves sinners through the obedience of Jesus and his sacrifice. Through drawing us to repentance and faith to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Romans 9.23 tells us that God is glorified when he shows mercy in saving sinners who were otherwise destined for eternal punishment. Because it was out of divine love that God sent his son to be born a man, to live as Jesus. To manifest and show us God's great love such that whoever turns from sin and believes in Jesus shall never perish but shall have eternal life. You all know the verse, John 3.16. But it was the God-man that is required. 
It is to God's glory that he has closed this giant distance, this giant chasm between God and man, reconciling to himself in the life, death, and resurrection of the God-man Jesus, such that because Jesus is both eternal God and fully man, that God can tell us to approach him with confidence. With confidence, he says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. God created us as his image bearers to glorify him, to worship him, to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But what does the prophet Isaiah say? He says, your iniquities, your sins have actually made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not even hear. So it pleased God, it glorified God to open the possibility of communion with Him and that required the voluntary condescension coming down of the Son by His taking on a human nature. It required the incarnation so that through Christ we might be brought to God. As 2 Timothy says, that it is God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before he was ever appeared. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It is the advent of Jesus, fulfilling the plan of the triune God established before creation, before time began, that bridges the gap between God and in man. We are told, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2.5. It is in the incarnation that Jesus bridged that gap, that he assumed the role of mediator. And it is only the incarnate Son of God that can accomplish this, because Jesus inherently possesses all that belongs to God, every attribute in his divine nature, and at the same time, everything that makes someone truly human, Jesus also possesses. In Jesus, then, God identifies with humanity, with his creation, in a powerful way. Jesus, think about this, he had the nature, the very nature of God who was offended by sin. That sin could not be in his presence. And yet at the same time, he had the very nature that did the rebelling and the sinning. He didn't sin, but he had a human nature. He could identify with the magnitude of the offense against a holy God that deserves eternal wrath. But at the same time, he can identify with the pain and the suffering and the endless calamities we face due to the weight of sin in our life and how it affects all of creation. In Jesus, we get to see God as something more than a frightening image of pure holiness. We see his purity matched with his compassion for his people. We see his ultimate power, but we see his humility. And most of all, we see the God-man that we are called to imitate, such as the Bible says, whatever we do, whatever we do, all may be done to the glory of God. We celebrate the Incarnation just as an event, as a holiday, one day of year. We have to remember, as followers of the living Christ, the Incarnation has eternal significance, our closing point. That Jesus was truly man, meant that he could bear the penalty for sins, 
of all people who will repent and trust in Christ Jesus alone. First Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. That saving work has eternal significance for every single person saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it was the incarnation of the Son of God that afforded that sinless body that would hang on the cross as a substitute for us. The incarnation is eternal in another way. Jesus did not just exist as the God-man for a time, for just a short period just to accomplish the saving work on the cross and then jettison the flesh and go back to being the eternal son. No, Jesus is both God and man forever. What happened when Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb was an act of love of God that is permanent and eternal. Thomas Watson, another Puritan, he wrote about the incarnation that in the incarnation, Christ took our flesh that he might make the human nature appear lovely to God. And the divine nature appear lovely to man. We think so highly of ourselves that we miss this divine work. Christ took our flesh that he might make the human nature appear lovely to God. You not see it as a sinful race. There's nothing attractive, inherently attractive, about humanity to God. We sin against him. We rebel against him. We are children of wrath. We're his enemies, the Bible says. And we are repugnant to his holiness. Our very lives Do not testify to him. But in the incarnation, Jesus then comes and he washes us clean with his once for all sacrifice on the cross. And he restored the beauty of humanity to God forever. We know in Colossians 1.22, it is Jesus who is now reconciled. We're not enemies any longer. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he presents us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And so when we read that promise that the man Christ Jesus is the only mediator between us and God, what we are reading is that God can see in the perfect righteousness and sinlessness of the human nature of the Son, the human nature of Jesus, exactly what we will all become one day. We're all going to die unless Jesus returns first. But at the final judgment, we're going to be made complete again, body and soul, same human nature that Jesus possesses. And the Apostle John writes, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, like Jesus. The incarnation explains why heaven will be forever. Because we who are created and consist of body and soul are united forever to Jesus, who also possesses body and soul. We are told time and again, We are the bride of the living Christ. And so for heaven to end, either Jesus has to cease to exist, which is an impossibility, or God would have to sin. He would have to divorce his bride, which is also impossible. God's love for his bride is perfect. His love for each one of you is endless if you belong to him. He loves his creation so much so that his very son, eternal son, became man So that man can approach God, cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a beautiful humanity. And though being fully God, Jesus can sympathize forever with every pain we suffer, with every temptation we face, 
but with the grief that we feel in this life. He tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. He knows what it is to be human. He is not only our redeemer, but our example. The Bible gives us many ways that it says this. We're told to love each other, not like some other example, but we're told to love each other like Christ loved us. We're told to imitate Christ. We're told to walk in the same manner in which he walked, so live like he lived. We're told to forgive each other, but not just forgive each other. Forgive each other as Jesus Christ forgave us. We're told to have the mind of Christ among us, to be unified in the faith. We're told to obey his commandments. To, to, to see that he is our example should drive us to know him better as he is revealed in Scripture. And one author pointed out something that I think is great. He said, we're not told to imitate a beggar in order to demonstrate humility. Now, you can come up with all kinds of human examples, but that's not what we're told in Scripture. Rather, we are told to imitate a glorious God. The Christian grace of humility begins by imitating the incarnation of the Son of God. And to do that, you have to understand it. There was no greater act of humility. But let's return to our verse and we'll close. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We know God. We know God loves us for one real reason. Because Jesus arrived in the flesh on that first Christmas day. He was indeed vindicated by the Spirit when He suffered without sin. When He went to the cross, and then he was raised from the grave after his crucifixion, which was his substitutionary atonement for us. And his resurrection was a vindication because it was a sign of God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice as perfect, complete, fully effective on behalf of all who believe in him. He was seen by angels. You know this because you know the Christmas story. Who announced the birth of Christ? The angels in the heaven, some of them announcing his birth, praising God, glory to God in the highest. And where else did the angels witness his work? They rolled away the, t the stone from his tomb. And they were there to announce to the women who arrived after three nights that Jesus had been in the grave, he's no longer here. He has risen, just as the scriptures said. And if you understand the most amazing miracle that ever took place, that the eternal Son of God took on a human nature, lived as a man, Christ Jesus, died for us, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for his people, and who will return again one day in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. If you understand these things about the God-man, that by turning to him, following him as Lord, that you will have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then it is no wonder but as our verse says, you will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ this Christmas season and every single day throughout the year. For there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let's pray this season that the world indeed sees His glory. That the world is moved to repentance turns to Jesus Christ, 
is the living Lord, the God-man, and sees the miracle of Christmas, that God sent His Son to live, to die, all to save His people. We should never lose sight in these things of the sheer magnitude of what God has done to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even though we spend this time in your word this morning, we do not scratch the surface of the significance of what you have done to save us. It is indeed impossible to comprehend your eternal nature. And that though you created all things, the eternal Son would live in human flesh. That he would forever have body and soul. That he would give us our example to follow. He would live in perfect righteousness. He would be our guide. He is our Savior and our Redeemer. Lord, we pray that in this hyper-commercialized time of year, where the world seems to have taken over the mystery of godliness, trying to replace it with fictional characters and all of the trappings, that we might enjoy this time with family, but never lose sight of the most amazing miracle. Jesus Christ was born in the flesh, though he existed for all eternity. That you sent your Son to save us. That we can look with reverence and awe back 2,000 years upon that day. That we can see how the world has changed. That we can be thankful and grateful that you have chosen to save us. Lord, give us the boldness to speak truth to the world. Show the love of Christ to our neighbors in this holiday season. That on Christmas we might demonstrate to the world that we worship the living Christ, the God-man. It is in his name we pray. Amen.